Well, I don't think this morning we're going to have uh, a PowerPoint uh, up here. Don't even bother trying, Paul. That's uh, kind of what messed us up in the first place. And so we'll just leave it. Trust me, it was really good, though. <laughs> Probably better than the message itself, but hey, no. Well, we've been engaged. Actually, you know, I was thinking about it again. Um, those of you who have been around for a while know that it's not unusual to have a Sunday where we show up and something went wrong again. And uh, whether it's furnaces uh, one time or something else. And you may think that we do that purposely just to make us really uncomfortable here. So we all get to look forward to the, to the new building. But this is just a reality of what is. And um, uh, it's just uh, a function of being in this place. And that's going to happen when we tear down every week and we move things around. And uh, unfortunately, we're looking forward to uh, better days ahead in our new building. Well, we've been engaged in a, a series of messages this fall that we've simply called 3G. Grace, gratitude, growth. It is grace that saves us. It is grace that changes us. It is grace that teaches us. It's grace that keeps us. And as a result, our hearts are filled with gratitude when we think about what God has done for us through Jesus. And so our response to Jesus and what he has done is really a response of thanksgiving. This third G, growth, is what, after coming to faith in Jesus, we then do for the rest of our lives. We grow in our relationship with Jesus. We grow and we change and become more like him. We grow, as the Bible calls it, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Father wants us to become holy and godly, to be more like his son, Jesus to take on his characteristics, his attributes, his values. He wants us to see things and feel thin things and think of things the way he does and act the way that he would. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 15, we read, God wants us to grow up like Christ in everything. We have the privilege of having many, many babies around here. And as you know, Babies are very, very cute, and they're lots of fun. But if they never, ever grew up, it would be a terrible tragedy. I've had the privilege of raising two kids, still in the process. And I have to say I've enjoyed every single stage in life. But it is really fun when you have teenagers now, or one at least, and you can almost have adult conversations, and things have changed, and you see them grow and mature. Well, the same thing happens to us spiritually. God wants each of us as his children to grow up. And what does it mean to be spiritually mature? Again, Ephesians 4.15 makes it clear. It's just to be like Christ in everything. If we want to know what God wants us to look like, to be like, we need not look any further than Jesus himself. That is the picture of spiritual maturity. Our goal, our desire, our purpose really is to become more and more like Christ. And friends, if you have been on this journey for any length of time, you probably already know this. But this growth, this maturity just doesn't happen overnight. We don't come to faith in Jesus one day and then the next day we have all the thinking and feeling and acting like Jesus just down pat. We got it all under control. No, it's a process. It's a process that takes your entire life. 
God will take the rest of your life to build your character and transform your heart. We have already looked at several things that help us grow as disciples of Jesus. We've looked at the role of worship, the attitude of joy, the the importance of solitude, the, the place of other believers in our lives, the need to put others first and to serve them, and the importance of meeting God in His Word. Because we are, in fact, transformed by truth. So yes, we need to read God's Word and to study it. But most importantly, we need to obey it. James writes, Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the Word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. And simply put, The best way, I believe, to be molded into the person God wants us to be is to abandon ourselves in obedience to Jesus. Well, what is obedience? Obedience is simply hearing God's word and then acting accordingly. The word translated obey in the Old Testament means to hear, and it's often translated that way. And in the New Testament, there are several words that describe obedience. One word means to hear or to listen in a state of submission. Another New Testament word often translated obey means to trust. A person's obedient response to God's word is really a response of trust or faith. And therefore, to really hear God's word is then to obey God's word. The Bible actually views disobedience then as a failure to hear and to do God's word. Israel's story, as you read it in the Old Testament, was one of a nation who failed to hear or to listen to God. And then Jesus himself warned, anyone who has ears should listen. Our spiritual transformation takes place over time and results from both God doing his work in our lives through the Holy Spirit and our obedience. So God does His work in our lives, and we do ours. You see, we are really responsible in many ways for our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. And so to help us explore this a little further, I want to look at the passage that Bob read for us earlier, Ephesians chapter 4. And here Paul uses the, the image of undressing and redressing to help us understand that the Christian life is a lifelong process of taking off the dirty, soiled, tattered clothes of our sinful nature and then being dressed in a fresh set of clothes that will transform us into beings who reflect God's holiness and righteousness. He is trying to transform us into His image. So let me try to put the process of transformation into very practical terms. We are creatures of habit. A couple messages ago, I shared some unusual habits that I have. But habits are ways of, are are just practiced ways, things that we do repeatedly of thinking, feeling, or acting. They become so much a part of us that they are, in, in many ways, second nature. We don't even have to think about them anymore. And we all have things that we do that we don't even need to think about. Example, 
When you leave the house, you probably go through the routine and you, you know, you lock the door almost subconsciously and you get in the car and you drive off the down or you get in the garage, you open the garage door, you get in the car, you drive out, you, you take off and then you're like, did I close the garage door? Did I lock the door? Right? And of course you go back, if you think, it's just crazy, I got to go back. You go back, the garage door is down, the door is locked, everything's just the way you left. Because you've done it thousands of times and it just is totally second nature. Well, our habits become so well ingrained that we can eventually master even complex behaviors and perform them without much conscious thought. Do Do you remember when you first learned to drive a car? There were so many things to think about, right? Everything you did was a conscious effort, right? You went in and you're, you're like making sure you're getting that key in the ignition and, and the seat belt on and that the seat's in the proper position and that you can see in the rear view mirrors properly and, and all of these things, right? Well, then after thousands of hours probably behind the wheel of a car, we find that we can do almost everything without even thinking about it even in the dark, right? We can just get in our car, we stick the key in, we just know where everything is, and it's just done. Life is full of good and bad habits. We have habits of thinking and feeling and acting that ultimately either both honor God or dishonor God or displease him. We follow Jesus, or to follow Jesus rather, is to commit ourselves really to putting off the old and putting on the new. Getting rid of the old habits and putting on new habits. And God desires to build habits into our character that please him. Habits represent a commitment, in essence, to a holy life, and we're supposed to develop habits so that obedience really becomes almost a built-in instinct. And so how do we develop the habits that reflect God's character? Well, Paul's words to the Ephesians are helpful for us. It's really what I want us to think about this morning. It's the title of the message this morning. It's simply this, that it's basically out with the old and in with the new. And Paul gives us this principle to practice if we want to see habits changed and our lives transformed. Our usual approach to change in our lives is to simply stop a habit of thinking, feeling, or acting. Right? We maybe decide to eat less or we decide that we're going to be less critical. We, We try to stop a wide variety of negative behaviors. And we might actually do pretty well for a little while. We may even think, you know, I've got this thing licked. But then our will crumbles and the former behavior is back, often stronger than ever. And we're not very successful. And often this cycle repeats and it repeats and it repeats. We identify some behavior, some negative attitude, and we set our will against it. I am not ever going to do that again. I'm not going to think like that anymore. I am not going to act in that way. And we have some success in that. 
we stop doing what we know we shouldn't be doing in the first place. But then the will crumbles and we find ourselves doing it again. And it's so frustrating. And you, and you wonder if it's ever going to change. And you start to think, you know, why even bother? This has been an issue in my life for so long. It's just a part of who I am. I've had a bad temper my whole life. That just the way it is, and you just expect everybody else to live with it. And the point is, it's not enough to just stop doing this old negative behavior without replacing it by putting on a God-pleasing one. Paul says that we put off, but we must also put on. And the first step is to identify that habit of thinking, feeling, or acting that needs to be put to death or nailed to the cross. Then we must make a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and admit to God, ourselves, and to other people the nature of the wrong. And then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we replace that old behavior with actions that reflects God's righteousness and holiness. Can I use some very bold terms? All of us struggle with various sins. And sin is a, a way of thinking, feeling, or acting that misses the mark that God sets. And the Bible, as you read it, is so clear on so many things. Makes it clear the things that we should do and the things that we shouldn't do. Doing the things we shouldn't do and even not doing the things that we should do is called sin. And we all fall short of the standard that God set. Our response to that if we are seeking to live God-honoring lives like we sang this morning, it is my joy and all I do to honor you. If that is our desire, for seeking to live obedient lives, should then be to stop, to confess, and to repent. That means that we go in another direction. Or, using Paul's analogy here, we put off that sinful behavior and we put on the God-pleasing behavior. And Paul is helpful here, not just this analogy of putting on and putting off or out with the old or in with the new. He actually gives us then five illustrations or examples of this. Things that we should stop or to start, put off or to put on. And in each case, he even gives us a motivation for why it's important that we would do that. And the first, he says, in essence, is to put off falsehood and put on truthfulness. To put off falsehood and put on truthfulness. And I, I like, you know, the, the, the Greek words used here are often very instructive that sometimes we miss. And we probably get it when we think about falsehood. We may think of it just in the context of the things that we say. But the word used there is pseudos, of course, which we would get the word pseudo from, right? Something that is fake or deceitful where we pretend. And the Greek word for truth then literally means non-concealment. Nothing is hidden. Truth is what really is. It's not concealed or falsified. And what's the motivation, he says? Well, we got to speak truthfully to everyone, to, to, to one another, because we're all members of one body. 
And again, the, the word in Greek here translated members carries the idea of close relationship and interconnection like the limb of a body. So we do this, that is, we, we, we put on truthfulness because we are part of the same body and it just seems crazy to be lying to each other about the things that matter most to us. Where we might be really hurting about something and we just put on a smiley face on Sunday morning. And the Bible says, you know, that's falsehood. And you've got to put off that mask and put on truthfulness. Secondly, addresses the issue of anger. And what's interesting here is it's, he says to put off an angry temper, as it will, as it were, and then to put on tempered anger or anger under control because anger in and of itself is not sin. But it is usually how we express our anger that we cross a line and it becomes sin. It is an emotion that God has wired each of us with. And we all feel it. But we have to learn to help keep it or keep it from becoming sin then. And so we make a commitment to deal with our anger. The scripture says there, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. It's great advice, isn't it? Never let the anger fester. If you're married, you know how important that is, right? When you have had some issue surface and you just kind of turn your back and it's not the usual bedtime routine. You, there's no kiss, there's just a cold shoulder, right? That's for the married people. But that's the issue, right? In your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And it just, again, think about the practical application of this. If it says that, then our obedience says, well, then let's do that. Because the longer we leave anger and conflict unaddressed in any relationship, really, the greater chance that that has to completely disintegrate. And it's interesting here because Paul actually gives us a very good motivation for why we should do this. He says, because you don't want to give the devil a foothold. You don't want to create an opportunity for the enemy who's seeking to destroy our lives. We're we're open up to a vulnerability that the devil will ultimately exploit, right? And becomes a wedge in our relationships. And so it makes sense to put off that angry temper and put on tempered anger. The third example that Paul gives is one of Stealing. Basically, he says that um, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Put off stealing, put on working. It's really embarrassing when your kids get older and they have a more developed sense of right and wrong with respect to this. I had borrowed a CD from the library and um, I loaded the digital copy onto our computer and took the, lib- took the CD back 
Then Anna was going through the songs and she goes, Dad, did you buy this CD? And I knew exactly where she was going. And I'm like, well, no. Um, well, that's the one you got from the library, right? Yeah. Don't you always tell us that that's wrong? Yeah. Right? She's 11. Send her to her room next time, you know? But, but that's the issue. She got it right. I got it wrong. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. You've got to put off stealing. You've got to put on working. And so if you really want it, you can work hard and then buy it for yourself. You see, we're called to live sacrificially. And he really says here our motivation should be that so that we can share with others. Don't steal from others. No, work so that you can then share with others. The last, or two more. Put off harmful talk, he says, and put on helpful words. It's great here. You look at some translations and they'll use the word just unwholesome talk. And I I think if we think about it a little bit, we all know that maybe we've been into a conversation or we've said things where we've kind of crossed the line and we've used a word that, you know what, that wasn't overly appropriate. And we just feel, man, that wasn't the right thing to say. Maybe we even have truthful words to share, but we always have to ask, are they going to be helpful? That's the definition here. Will they be of benefit to the other person? Will it help build them up? And the motivation for this is because we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because the words that we use, they, they can wound people. But they also grieve the heart of God at times because we're all His children. You as a parent know exactly what that feels like when you have two siblings and one says something to the other one that's very hurtful. And as a parent, you're going, oh man, I wish you wouldn't have said that. And that's how God is, is when he hears and understands the words that we share, talk to one another. And if they're hurtful or harmful, he, he, he's grieved by that. So he wants us to put on helpful words. And lastly... We put off bitterness and we put on forgiveness. It's the root of bitterness that gets a hold in our lives sometimes. And if we're not careful, it just spirals out of control. And we see it here in in how Paul describes this. He says, get rid of all bitterness. And look at how it just seems to just get worse, right? Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, and so here's what we put on it says, be kind and compassionate. And we forgive one another. Why? Because in Christ, that's how God treated you. So you see how this works? When we want to grow in our relationship with God and to become more like His Son, Jesus, we need to put off some of the old habits and we need to put on new ones. It's out with the old and in with the new. And this is something we intentionally and thoughtfully do. 
But we do it with God's grace and with his strength. God plays a part, but we do our part. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We confess it. We stop it. We turn from it. And we engage in godly behavior instead. And let me say again, this is a lifelong process. And so we need to be patient with the process. Richard Lovelace gives us good insight into the process of transformation when he writes this. He says, God will proceed at a rate and follow a course which is ideally suited to the individual, raising successive issues over the years and making a point of the need for growth in one area after another. He seldom shows us all of our needs at once. We would be overwhelmed at the sight. And so God, in his goodness and his grace, he just gives us one thing or a couple things at a time. He keeps chipping away and chiseling so that we become more and more into the image of his son. There is no such thing as instant godliness. It matters that we commit ourselves to a lifetime of change and transformation under the guidance of the Holy Spirit because we just can't change ourselves. 